Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Once upon a time, there was an old man of 87 whose name was Laban. All his life, he had been a quiet and peaceful person. He was very poor, and he was very happy. When Laban discovered that he had mice in his house, he at first did not bother himself about it greatly at all. But as mice are wont to do, they multiplied. They kept right on multiplying, and finally there came a time when he could stand it no longer. This is too much, he said. This is really going a bit too far. He hobbled out of the house and went down to the road to a shop where he bought himself some mousetraps, a piece of cheese, and some glue. When he got home, Laban put the glue on the underneath of the mousetraps and he stuck them to the ceiling. Then he baited them carefully with pieces of cheese and set them to go off. That night, when the mice came out of their holes and they saw the mouse traps on the ceiling, they thought it was a tremendous joke. They walked around on the floor, nudging each other and pointing with their front paws and, and roaring with laughter. After all, it was pretty silly, mouse traps on the ceiling. When Laban came down the next morning and he saw that there were no mice caught in the traps, he smiled but said nothing. He then took a chair and he put some glue on the bottom of its legs and stuck it upside down to the ceiling. Then he took the same with the table and the television set and the lamp. He took everything that was on the floor and he stuck it upside down on the ceiling. He even put a little carpet up there. The next night, when the mice came out of their holes, they were still joking and laughing about what they had seen the night before. But now when they looked up at the ceiling, they stopped laughing very suddenly. Good gracious me, cried one. Look up there. There's the floor. Heavens me, shouted another. We must be standing on the ceiling. I'm beginning to feel a bit giddy, said another. All the blood's going to my head, said yet another. This is terrible, said a senior mouse with very long whispers, whiskers. This is really terrible. We must do something about it at once. I shall faint if I have to stand on my head any longer, shouted a young mouse. Me too, I can't stand it. Save us, do something, somebody, quick. I know what I'll do, said the very senior mouse. We'll all stand on our heads. Then anyway, we'll be the right way up. Obediently, one by one, they all stood on their heads. And after a long time, one by one, they fainted from a rush of blood to their heads. When Laban came down the next morning, the floor was littered with mice. Quickly, he gathered them up one by one 
and popped them all into a basket. Now, Roald Dahl, the author of this little tale, he doesn't tell us what Laban does with the mice. He leaves that to our imaginations. But he does add this little closing. So the thing to remember is this. Whenever the world seems terribly upside down, make sure to keep your feet firmly on the ground. As we turn our attention to this evening's passage from James, and we're in this preaching series as we're working through this great epistle, but we encounter a rather fired up apostle, uh, intent on putting some upside down people back on the ground. He's addressing those who have inverted the faith. What's up is down and what's down is up. Rather than seeking wisdom from above, the wisdom that manifests itself in, in the church with the harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace, there are those within the body that are marked by bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and unbridled passion, leading to quarreling, fighting, coveting. He even puts murder out there. And James, he, he just doesn't seem to be pulling his punches here. And as I read it, I'm taken back to my high school wrestling room as the coach just lays into us after a substandard match. Gone are James's gentle references to his readers, beloved brothers and sisters. Uh, no, we are met with such warm and fuzzies as you adulteresses, sinners, you double-minded. What causes quarrels and passions uh, uh, what causes fights among you, he writes. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. It is not warm and fuzzy, James. But it has been a slow burn towards which James has been building for some time where an implicit opposition to pride begins to make itself um, plain. This is what I mean by that. In the earlier passages that we've encountered, James has opposed the hypocrites who bear no fruit. He's chided those who claim to care for the poor but do nothing to help them. He's admonished the boasting of the tongue and the ambitious. He's rebuked selfish ambitions and bitter jealousy. And now he's got passions run wild in his crosshairs. But, but I think we can lump all of it into the human malady of pride. It's what C.S. Lewis called the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride. It's a sickness endemic to every human. It's not confined by gender or socioeconomic status or where you grew up or how old you are or the time in which you live. Pride. And it's this great malady that I would suggest is at the root of our problem of taking that which is up and putting it down and taking that which should be down and putting it and exalting it. Pride. 
The Christian writer Lewis Smedes writes this about what pride can do within us. And it's kind of hard to take, but it's an awfully good diagnosis, I think. So see if you can stay with it. Pride in the spiritual sense is the refusal to let God be God. It is to grab God's status for oneself. It's wishing to be the creator, independent and reliant upon one's own resources, and that is the greatest delusion of all delusions. Because, of course, we are not independent and self-reliant. Smeeds goes on to say, pride leaves us empty at the center. Therefore, we learn to swagger. We're attacked by demons of fear and anxiety, and so we bluff. We look around, and every time we encounter a new person, we use them as a buttress for our shaky ego that pride created. Every time we meet a new person, we are unconsciously wondering how this person can contribute to our need to prove that we count. Life, therefore, becomes a huge battle to use people to bolster our own self. That's a painful diagnosis. But, you see, I think it fits very well with what James says in this passage. Which is to say, if you have multiple people who are all held in the grip of such pride, all trying to assert their own way, all trying to have their passions fulfilled, it's no wonder that quarreling and fighting and snobbery and taking advantage of and coveting and even murder can run rampant when humans are together in families and nations and schools and dorms and places of work and neighborhoods. And tragically, even in the church. Even in the church. It was the case in James' day, it's continued on to ours. It was the 17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza who observed, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Heartbreakingly, I know that there are those among us who have suffered under the prideful tyranny of fellow Christians. And there are those among us who have been hurt and wounded because of pride and leading to fighting and quarreling ran rampant in the church. And as a representative of the church, I suppose all I can say to start is, I am sorry that you have had to endure that. And there are those also among us who I know have at times contributed to the fighting and the quarreling and the backbiting and the gossip and the pain to other Christians. We have at times grabbed God's status for ourselves, perhaps, or put ourselves at the center of the universe. Pride, self-exaltation is in fact a weed that grows in all soils. As one person put it, it grows readily in the most heathen of parties, 
but it also finds fertile soil in churches, even among true believers in Jesus. None of us are exempt. That's why Jesus himself, and then Paul, and Peter, and now James, all here warn of its pervasive effect, but they don't leave us there. They warn us of its effect, but then they point us to the cure, toward health, toward integration, that we profess with our lips might we might live with our lives. In short, that we might be a people marked by deep humility. You see, my friends, God is not content to let his people live under the ruin and misery of pride. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me for a moment, if, if you have your bulletin. If not, if not, I'll read it. You adulterous people, James writes, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There, whoever wishes, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, living in pride and no need for God, makes himself an enemy of God. Now the prideful ride off and destroy their enemies. But look at what James describes of God's reaction when his people write him off. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? God's heart yearns in jealousy over you, that you might be in right relationship with him. Not the manipulative, controlling jealousy that often afflicts the human hearts that, that we know of, but, but with the holy, righteous jealousy born of love, that we might be his and that he might be ours because it was how we were made to be. And when we are not, we fall into prideful ruin. But here, the creator of the universe yearns jealously for you. A number of years ago, I had something really uh, horrific thing happen to me where I was attacked unprovoked. And I remember speaking to my father about it afterwards. And we were on the, he was on the phone. And, and I remember him saying how angry he was at the person who did that to me. And it totally caught me off guard. I knew he loved me. I know he loves me. But that he would have that sort of emotional reaction that his son was hurt. And it pricked my heart. And I hope that this notion that God yearns jealously over you, even when you are prideful and putting yourself at the center of the world, and I hope that might uh, begin to prick your heart as well. But it's not just a yearning that he has for you. He acts on your behalf. James tells us he gives more grace. God gives more grace. You cannot outspend him. You cannot outrun him. You cannot outsin his grace. For the believer, there is always more grace. For the places where you need forgiveness, there is more grace. For the places where you need to forgive others, there is more grace. For your daily needs, there is more grace. 
for help in the time of need, there is more grace. For your unseen struggles against the passions that wage against your heart, there is more grace. For those bound and blinded by pride, there is more grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far. Tis grace will lead me home. There was an image I read about this week that I absolutely loved. I don't know if it'll stick with you, but it certainly has stuck with me. Um, I read about an artist this week who submitted a painting of Niagara Falls for an exhibition, but neglected to give this uh, painting a title. And the gallery receiving the painting was uh, faced with a need to, to name this picture of this painting of Niagara Falls. And they came up with these words. The title, More to Follow. More to Follow. My friends, the immense waters of Niagara Falls uh, may run out someday, for all we know. But not the grace of God that he supplies for his people as they humble themselves before him. The supply is endless. It's the bush that burns but is never consumed. And that humbling of ourselves is where James takes us. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And he, and he gets a litany of things that James gives us to do. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy be to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I'm going to take a brief, brief caveat here because it, it seems a downer, right? I mean, we're, it seems pretty gloomy here. And it's almost as if James is anti-joy. I just want to assure you that James is not anti-joy. Um, we're, we're off this talent show last night, and downstairs after the talent show, uh, person after person came up to me and said, oh, I needed that laughter. And laughter is a good medicine. And God is the supplier of all joy. And I don't think James would look askance and tell us not to laugh at what happened last night in all the ridiculousness and all the fun. That's not what he's getting at. What James is getting at is the mocking laughter of the sinner who thinks he or she has no need of God. So with that caveat out of the way, I can't possibly exposit all that James instructs us to do. So here's what I want to say as this evening's uh, pertaining to humbling ourselves. Two things I want to say. Both of them come out of the great Anglican poet George Herbert's poem, Busyness. And I would commend it. It's not long. It's a short poem, but I love his final verse. I commend the poem to you, but here's his final verse. He who in heart not ever kneels, neither sin nor Savior feels. He who in heart not ever kneels, neither sin nor Savior feels. We first bend our heart in recognition of our sin. You know, our liturgy and song this evening has sought to lead us to that end, to aid us in bending the knee of our heart before God, the holy, living, 
righteous one. To recognize that we may have been prideful, or we likely were. It may have manifested itself in quarreling, or a boastful tongue, or allowing our passions to wreak havoc in our lives and spilling out in havoc to those around us. And so we come bending the heart, acknowledging our pride, and we call out, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Going back to C.S. Lewis, he writes, if you think you're not conceited, you are very conceited indeed. And if you think you have no pride, you are very full of pride indeed. But that acknowledgement that we are proud, that we have conceit, that we have put ourselves always before others, it deals a great blow to our pride because we are acknowledging that we are not all we are imagined ourselves to be. He who in heart not ever kneels, neither sin nor Savior feels. So we come bending the knee of our heart. Second, we gaze upon our Savior, Jesus, who is the greatest among us, but became a humble servant for our sake. He was in the very form of God, dwelling with the Father from all eternity, in peace, eternal love, and joy. And yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being the born in the likeness of flesh and bones like what we have. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the humiliating death of our cross, there was no further means of humiliating a person that the Romans knew than to crucify someone. Even he submitted himself to the humiliating death upon a cross. And you look at all these rapid fire commandments from James there at the end of the passage. You may want to go through them later, but but every single one of them point to Jesus. He submitted himself to the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. He resisted the temptations of the devil, and the devil fled. He drew near to God moment by moment, Day by day. Well, his hands were clean, his heart was pure. But in his passion, he experienced wretchedness and mourning and weeping and the deep, deep gloom upon the cross. And he humbled himself, not because he was bound by pride, but because we are. You and I. He humbled himself. He did it so that he could bear our pride and our sinful passions and our self-centeredness and our boasting and bury it all in the tomb. And because he did this on our behalf, you are forgiven. You are declared righteous. And in God's sight, enemies have been made friends. You have been made a friend of God. And because he did this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him now the name that is above every name, that at every, his name every knee shall bow. And it is to this humble one that we bend the knee of our hearts. And as we do so, he pours his grace upon us 
moment by moment, day by day, as he teaches us to submit, to flee, to purify our hands, to cleanse our hearts, to humble ourselves. He's already done it. And he's been leading his people through that process for thousands of years. And he can do it for you, and he can do it for me. He who in heart not ever kneels, neither sin nor Savior feels, may it not be so for us. May I encourage you this evening to bend the knee of your heart that you might confess those areas of pride that you need to acknowledge before God, but also that you might know the limitless grace of our Savior Jesus, who is about the business of taking and turning the terribly upside down and putting them on solid ground for his cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.